afternoon. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I'm Susie Larson, and this is Live the Promise. And we are here to help you engage in a strong and active walk of faith. Really glad you tuned in. Hope you've had a great day and a great week so far. Well, my guest today is CEO of Crown Financial Ministries. You probably know him, Chuck Chuck Bentley. And he has something to say that just might surprise you because you know him as a financial expert. But first, he asks the question, are you worried about money? Are you worried about money? Many, many people are. Well, he suggests if you're married and you're worried about money, he wants you to work on your marriage first. In fact, another expert gave him this advice years ago as it relates to business, and he's passing it on to us today as it relates to marriage. And here it is. It is impossible to prosper when there is war. You must seek peace first. Then you will prosper. So Jack Pentley joins me today to talk about his book, Money Problems, Marriage Solutions, Seven Keys to Aligning Your Finances and Uniting Your Hearts. This book is packed with wisdom. We've got three copies. Won't be taking calls today, but you know the way to get in the drawing. Just email me, Susie at MyFaithRadio.com. Put uh, money problems in the subject line. Don't forget your mailing address. And we'll draw three names, and you should get that book probably by the end of the week, maybe by the beginning of next week. So you know, uh, as well as I do, these are days where we need to be praying and interceding. If you want to join the Faith Radio prayer team, you just have to sign up, myfaithradio.com, because the effective prayer, the fervent prayer of a righteous person, believe it or not, it accomplishes great and powerful things. That's what Scripture says. Will you join us, and you will get uh, emails of how to pray for your city, for your nation, for the people of God. We would love for you to join us. All right, let me tell you about my guest. We'll get him on the show. Chuck Bentley is graduate of Baylor University and CEO of Crown Financial Ministries. He's traveled throughout the world teaching biblical financial principles to the affluent, middle class, poor, and ultra poor. He's the author of five books, including this latest book we're talking about today that he wrote with his wife, Anne. He and Anne have been married since 1978. They have four sons and four grandchildren. Dear Chuck, welcome back to the show. Actually, you've never been on, so I'm going to say welcome back next time you join us again. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Susie. We've been a partner with Faith Radio Network for many years. We just love what you do there, love your ministry. Mm. and. I'm honored to be your guest today. Thank you for having me. Well, we're so honored to have you, and we love having you in our lineup as well. And so, Chuck, we start every single day talking Scripture. Before we get to the Scripture, I just want our listeners to know Chuck's heart, because before every time Aaron, my producer, gets our guest on the air, on the, on the line, I should say, before we go on the air, I just pause and say, can we just pray? And I like to pray a blessing over my guests and their family and their ministry. Well, Chuck beat me to the punch. Before I just about opened my mouth ready to pray and he goes, let's pray. And I just, that's the first in seven years plus of Live the Promise. So that just shows you Chuck's wonderful heart. So Chuck, we start every day talking scripture and you chose Proverbs 18 verses 10 and 11. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Talk about that passage, if you would. Well, thank you, Susie. I I just wanted to mention about prayer. I I really believe that uh, my life has been bought and is owned by the Lord. And Mm -hmm. my purpose and Anne's purpose in life is to try to bring others to him and to experience his rescue. He's done so much for us. I couldn't uh, pray to him enough, give him enough, or uh, serve him enough to, in exchange for what he's done for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that verse really expresses our heart that uh, I teach about finances. I teach all over the world, and most people think that I'm going to emphasize uh, their financial well-being. But really what this, the emphasis in the Scripture, the whole message in the Scripture, is that Christ uh, is superior to money. And that he provides for us and he does for us things that money cannot buy. 
And that verse in Proverbs really uh, sets it apart that we, the righteous run to the Lord. He is our safe place. He is our strong tower. Um, but the, the wealthy imagine that their, uh, that their finances are a fortified city. And, and the Bible calls it imaginary. It does not save you. Uh, I was thinking yesterday about your heart and your concern for the people in Nevada and all those in the midst of that terrible tragedy. You know, money wouldn't solve that problem. Money wouldn't make that problem go away. The only place to run is to the Lord uh, because he is our strong tower. The righteous run into him and are safe. Chuck, I so appreciate you telling your backstory in the book, Money Problems, Marriage Solutions. And I just think that's what makes you so accessible. And if you don't mind, give a little backstory, both on your faith and your financial journey. I came to faith in Christ as a young boy, and I met Anne while we were in college. We were complete opposites. The book tells a little bit of our story and our personal journey. Uh, We've been asked before, why did we write the book? And I say uh, it was written because of P-A-I-N. We had so much pain (laughs) that that we had to work through as a couple. I was and complete opposite. We met in accounting class. Uh, she made a 95 on the first accounting test in college. I made the opposite of that. And so I, I was really, uh, I was accused of falling in love with her so I could pass accounting. But we were radically opposite. But we fell in love and we discovered that we, uh, it was difficult for us to make financial decisions together. And it caused her pain. It caused me pain. And and we were we were just a frustrated couple. We we didn't we weren't able to talk about our finances well. I made a lot of poor decisions, made a lot of big financial mistakes, and Anne suffered through that with me. And through the years, uh, we found a way that God could unite us and bring us together. And it started with working on us. It didn't start with working on our finances. And Susie, most people think I'm going to give them the basics of cutting up the credit card and getting out of debt or living on a budget. But what we've found, and I've been doing this for 17 years and counseling lots of couples, even if you've done those things, you can still be worlds apart in your heart and minds with your very own spouse. And so we tried to write a book that helps people to get uh, into the real core of their being so that the two do become one and the two can function and enjoy the benefits that God promised in a marriage. Well, for the sake of the person listening today who feels like they're in a funk in marriage and in a funk in finances and they're very intertwined, tell me about the turning point in the marriage and the turning point in the finances when you kind of got a glimmer of hope and a change of direction. Yeah, in my personal testimony, Susie, Ann asked me to go to a Crown Financial Ministries course that was offered through our local church, and I was very arrogant and stubborn about that. It offended me that she would ask me to go to a class on finances. Uh, what in the world would I need to know about money that I didn't already know? I even told her I would take a, a you know an MBA course, if uh, a master's levels course, if she thought I didn't know enough. But I wasn't going to study the Bible about money. Now, Susie, I really said that. And much to my embarrassment and shame, uh, she had been praying for me to to get on the same page with her for all these years. We ended up in a crown Bible study together. And I realized that I was completely ignorant of what the Scripture said about money. I'd been a Christian since I was a little boy, as I said earlier, but I'd never been taught or discipled in the area of my finances. So I was stumbling along in the dark, 
trying to do it my way. Anne had her way of doing it. I didn't agree with her way. She didn't agree with my way. So we were stuck. And the turning point was after the Bible study, we realized God had an entire instruction book for us on how to do money, how to be, uh, how to do it his way. And Anne gently asked me, would you agree with God on what he said about money? And of course, what do you say to that? Exactly. Like, that's, that's a brilliant like, question. Say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you say, no, I don't agree. <laughs> Good luck with that. Uh, yeah. God, I'm, I'm smarter than God. <laughs> so I said, of course I'll agree with what God said. She said, well, if you agree with God, then I'll agree with you. Mm, wow. And that put us on the same page. Now there was a lot leading up to that. And since that turning point, we put together all of these steps that God took us through to really get on the same page in a way that we didn't think was possible after 20 years of having friction over this issue. But that was the turning point when I surrendered my pride and said, Lord, I will do things your way. That's amazing. And you think about, you know, so often uh, God has a spacious place for us that we enter in through a low door of humility. I mean, you think about that. You humbled yourself to go to this class and this study with your wife for the sake of your marriage and how God got a hold of you. And now uh, you're CEO of the ministry. I mean, isn't that just sort of a word picture for all of us as far as I just feel like that's so often the, tr- the way it is where God asks us to humble ourselves and submit ourselves in places where we're struggling, cease our striving, know that he's God. And he uses that low door of humility to bring us to a, a more spacious place. It's really amazing to think about. Well, God promises to lift up the humble. He promises that he's near those who are contrite and brokenhearted. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, uh shows favor to those who have come to the end of themselves. And really, Susie, when you, when you read between the lines, and, and we tell it fairly uh, transparently in our book, the problem in the marriage was my pride. Uh, I was a proud man. I wanted to do things my way. I, I kind of had this idea I'd be king of my own castle, and I just didn't listen. And Anne was so full of wisdom. She's full of biblical, uh, spiritual wisdom, and I wasn't taking advantage of that in the way that God had uh, so blessed me. And and so we didn't have the full advantage that uh, of our marriage. We were we were operating as if we were a doubles team instead of a singles team. And so there were two people trying to do their own thing and to win a match. And in reality, God said, I want to make two into one. I'm just so impressed with her question. Would you be willing to agree with God regarding finances? Because if you'll do that, I'll be in agreement with you. I mean, how long before you started to sense peace in your marriage and breakthrough in your finances? Well, it was... uh, it was a process. You know, Anne likes for me to tell people up front, there's a big disclaimer because we're still working on this. <laughs> you know, we're, a, we're a work in process. After 38 years, we're still working on it. But uh, peace came once we decided that we were going to accept each other. We were going to accept each other for our differences. We were going to accept each other as uh, a completion of who we are as man and wife and to recognize that we were missing the full benefit of our marriage. And, you know, Susie, this is an area of great pain for people. It's the number one area of pain in most marriages. It's the number one financial arguments are the number one predictor of a possible divorce. And so we think it's time that that issue is addressed so that we go from being frustrated with our finances to actually thriving 
And we've seen couples begin to thrive, just as we did, when they put this process into, into action. It does take work, though, Susie. It's not going to happen immediately. I think the miracle, is that you said, is that God uh, was gracious towards me when I humbled myself. He did do a miracle for me to be in the position I am today, for sure. Mm. Talking to Chuck Bentley today, he co-wrote the book with his dear wife, Ann Bentley. She's sort of a silent partner, but her influence is all over the book. Title is Money Problems, Marriage Solutions, Seven Keys to Aligning Your Finances and Untying Your... Uniting. (laughs) Sorry about that. Uniting Your Hearts. We're going to go through those seven uh, keys. And I've got three books. I'd love to get one into your hands. You can get into the drawing this way. Just email me, Susie, at MyFaithRadio.com. If you've got a question for Chuck, include that. And don't forget that mailing address. We'll be back in a minute. let that song play out a little bit. It'll be all right. You just got to hold on. Rescue has come. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Susie Larson. This is of The Promise. Talking to Chuck Bentley today, he co-wrote a book with his dear wife, Anne, titled Money Problems, Marriage Solutions, Seven Keys to Aligning Your Finances and Uniting Your Hearts. And before the break, he was saying, if you have stress in your marriage about money, he would tell you to bring peace to the marriage first uh, before you address the finances. Um, and you've got seven keys from the book. Chuck, let's take them one by one. The first one is commit to becoming a peacemaker. Say more if you would. Well, that's a verb. Uh, It's not just simply uh, hoping that there's peace in your family or peace in your home or peace in your marriage. Many times I hear couples say they're praying for peace, they're longing for peace, they want peace in their marriage. But the Lord said, blessed are the peacemakers, meaning they take action. They go and be the one to bring peace about. And we talk about our reluctance to do that because that's where Satan starts to divide a family. He starts to divide a couple when there's hurt feelings. And you can't avoid it. In our marriage, it happened a lot. Some marriages, not so much. But we all have, we're all vulnerable in a, because we love each other and we're so vulnerable in that situation to hurt each other. You know, the closer you are, the more likely you are to be hurt by the person. And when that happens, we have to have a method to reconcile. And so we shared some of the processes that we use to become a peacemaker. And I like to say if one of you in the marriage is a peacemaker, you're going to survive. But if both of you will become a peacemaker, then you'll start to thrive because you get rid of all of that friction. Uh, I grew up in Texas where we had a saying that if there was friction in your marriage, there was, there was sand in the sheets, hmm. meaning you, know, you, were, you were sleeping on the other side of the bed. And so we set up some systems to be sure that that wasn't happening. Uh, for one is we don't go to bed angry. We, we just, the scripture says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So if one of us is angry, then we stay up to talk out that problem and to get it resolved. And then I live by this little bitty uh, philosophy of apologizing. Uh, the, scripture, or the, the philosophy is that the first to apologize is actually the bravest. The first to uh, forgive is the strongest, and the first to forget is the happiest. <laughs> so mm, love that. We, 
the other day we were having a little, we had argued about something silly. I was, I'd been in the kitchen. I don't know. I think I was getting in her way. And then I went to my office and we were mad at each other. And I was working on the manuscript before the book was published. And Susie, she came around to apologize. Mm. And I laughed at her and I said, you're just trying to be first. (laughs) Stronger and braver. (laughs) Yeah. 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 We wrote the book and I said, I wanted to be first. It's kind of like our prayer at the beginning. I wanted to be first. Mm. So we've committed to become a peacemaker. And what that has done is prevented Satan from starting the division process. Uh, We're so easily offended. And when we get offended, we have taken the bait of Satan, and now we're allowing him to do the destruction. And we just want to be on guard against that. And we have been vigilant to both assume the role that when there's a problem, we'll take the action first. We'll, we'll see that as a verb, not just as a prayer request. Boy, that's good. Well, we just received two different emails asking pretty much the same question, but I'll read one of them. It says, I'd love to be entered for the book drawing. There you go. You are. My husband and I have been struggling with aligning our financial views. He's an ultimate saver. I believe in saving, but I also like to use money to build experiences, traveling, dinners with friends, etc., and donating to causes that I care about. We currently have our accounts combined, but I'm not sure that's working anymore. My question is, what does Chuck recommend? Couples, how should they manage their accounts? Together, separate, some of both? And if they're separate, how can we divide bills fairly? And then the other question is what you think about uh, spouses who keep separate accounts and how do you keep the peace when they're separate? So what do you say? Well, that's a great question and one that I'd like to unpack uh, sort of line by line, although it's fairly complex. I'm going to just address the joint account versus separate separate accounts. I like joint accounts because it creates accountability and, and visibility. I can't spend money without Ann knowing about it, and neither can she. In fact, we know everything about our uh, how we manage our finances, and, and so there's complete transparency and there's complete trust in that area. Sometimes it's uncomfortable, as she's pointing out, especially when you have differences, but your differences would be magnified if you go to the jo- uh, separate accounts and just start doing things your own way. I'm going to jump ahead in the book a little bit, Susie, because what she's defining is a different philosophy, and that is a universal problem in marriages where you've never examined what you really believe. He believes that saving is better. She believes that spending for experiences is better. And so how do you resolve that? Is you get on a the same philosophy as your spouse. And Ann and I wrote a chapter about that on our philosophy. I'll be happy to unpack our biblical philosophy of money and how we work through our uh, actual statement of philosophy and what we truly believe, because it helps you to make decisions quickly and easily if you believe the same thing about money. Boy, that's good. And we can even jump ahead. We've probably got about three and a half minutes to our bottom of the hour break. So we'll touch on some of them. But I want to walk through, I think there's like seven statements in your philosophy. But maybe first, I want you to tackle this whole idea. We've talked money personalities on the show before. And it's an interesting conversation, Chuck, because so often we tend to think, our money personality is the right one, and the other person is just sort of uninformed, you know, because they're spenders, savers, risk takers. But God can do something good through each of these. I feel like each of them somehow represent a portion of Christ's heart as far as, uh, if you know, if it's if it's submitted to him. Maybe say a word about that first. Well, I think that's a great point in regard to this question, Susie, that you're very intuitively picked up on it. Uh, the person who wrote that email is married to someone who is in some ways opposite. He likes to save, she likes to spend. And Ann and I had opposite personalities. Uh, we, As I said earlier, we were a pit bull and a poodle. Hmm. We were just so very different. 
uh, and I realized that God made her to complete me. I needed someone that had all of the strengths and gifts that I did not have. And so I call it a 360-degree marriage. When you see the world 180 degrees different, then you need to link arms and realize you've got each other's back. I'm an extrovert. I needed an introvert. I'm a talker. She's a thinker. I'm a, I'm a big-picture person. She's a detailed person. I'm a risk-taker. She's, she likes security. All of those things, I would be incomplete and vulnerable and completely crazy if I didn't have Anne to, com- to fill in the gaps. And so when I accepted her personality, it made an enormous difference. I looked at her one day and I said, oh, my goodness, you are my better half. Hmm. You are the missing part of my life. Hmm. And I am so grateful God made you like you are. In fact, there's a study that says if one person in the marriage is very picky, then you do better financially. And I looked at her and I said, wow, God gave me the perfect solution to managing our finances. You're a picky person. And I needed a picky person. But I, I literally accepted her, Susie, and she then accepted me. And we put together, we put aside all that stress when you go, wow, you're weird, you're different, you're odd. You know, I thought Anne was the wrong opposite. I thought I was the right opposite, that she needed to be more like me. And then suddenly we said, no, we're both made the way God wanted us to be, and we can work together. And when we work together, our results are not 2x, Susie. They're more like 10x of an improvement of our finances. And really, that is possible when you're both submitted to God. And I can imagine the frustration for one spouse who's, you know, in that particular season where Anne was just seeking God, asking God to move in your heart, and it seemed that you were probably making a a plan outside of God's best will. And I know there's lots of people listening today who are like, that's where I am. And I feel so frustrated because I feel like we could accept each other if we were both mutually submitted. Um, I guess I'd love your advice on that for that person who's saying, you know, how do I do this when they think differently? And clearly they have, they're making their plans and they're not letting the Lord determine their steps. We got to pause here for our hard break, but think about that. Then we will jump ahead for the sake of our two listeners who emailed uh, to talk about Chuck and Ann's philosophy because it's fantastic. So we're just going to kind of keep this conversation going. We've got three copies of Chuck Bentley's book, Money Problems, Marriage Solutions. Email if you want in on the drawing. And if you have a question, go ahead and include that as well. Remember, if you include your address, you're automatically in on the drawing. It's Susie at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll be back in a minute. you're having a really great day. Really glad you tuned in. I'm Susie Larson. This is Live the Promise, talking to Chuck Bentley, financial expert who co-wrote the book with his wife, Ann Bentley, titled Money, Problems, Marriage Solutions, Seven Keys to Aligning Your Finances and Uniting Your Hearts. If you want in on the drawing, just email me, Susie, at MyFaithRadio.com. Remember that mailing address. If you've got a question around finances, include that as well. And we were going to go through these keys one by one, but we received two emails, kind of similar questions about what if we have separate money philosophies? What if we have different mindsets. And before we get into your your living by God's philosophy, I just love the philosophy that you and Anne crafted together. 
I asked the question before the break, if you'd speak to that person listening today going, I feel like I am submitted to God's purposes, but my spouse is off doing his or her own thing, and uh, we're, we're so disjointed, I don't know what to do. What advice would you say? Well, that's where we were. Many people would probably not suspect that. You know, when you meet a ministry leader, you think they've got it all together or always have had it all together, and they just sort of, uh, you know, matriculated into this position of responsibility because of that. Well, we learn through pain. Uh, We like to tell people that we are compassionate for those who are struggling with their relationship and with their finances because we've had all those experiences. We sort of came up through the ranks through the hard way. But to to resolve that, what I think Ann would say, number one, is that she prayed for me without ceasing. Uh, She never gave up hope that one day we would truly have that deep sense of unity that she longed for. You know, there can be a deep loneliness in marriage when you feel like uh, you're not on the same page. Sometimes that that's where Satan starts the the destruction process. You know, you can say, "Wow, I don't feel like I even know this person. I don't think I even like this person. How did we get yoked together? I'm going to gut it out." But how in the world did I get in this mess? Uh, so Anne prayed that God would get my attention, and He did. Secondly, I think when you're in that situation, there's a lot of tension. You should accept your spouse. There's a friend told me years ago that we all wear this hidden sign on our heart that says, do you value me? Even when we meet a stranger, the first thing we wonder is, is this person that I meet going to value me? Or are they going to dismiss me? Or are they going to see me of no value? And when we show our spouse that we value them, that we show them that acceptance, I think it's the key that unlocks the, the beginning that that we're going to do this together, and we're going to invite God to to take two very different people and to mold us into one. It starts with respect for your spouse. If you know a man thrives on respect and a woman thrives on love and security, and so uh, offer that acceptance, pray, and trust God because. We're a poster child example of what God can do with two very opposite people that weren't going in the same direction. Mm, We are, too. I love that story. What a great testimony. Well, let's look at this uh, philosophy that you two crafted, all based on Scripture. The first point was giving is the highest and best use of money based on Acts 20, verse 35. Say a word about that, just how that evolved in your relationship, that giving aspect. Well, we used to be the kind of people that would sit in church, and when the plate was passed, uh, Ann would see me trying to find my wallet or ask her to dig in the purse to find the checkbook. You know, we did the pat down, and we weren't prepared. That was always an embarrassment to her. I did not tithe. I was a 2.6% giver. That's the national average, and I was extremely Mm -hmm. happy about that, that I was the national average. And Ann just... She just felt like we weren't living what God said to do with money, and and so God brought us together that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And we set that as our North Star, that we're not living to accumulate treasures on earth. We're living to lay up treasures in heaven. So we agreed. And so when we, you know, we have a plan. Anne likes to give, you know, every week, just like Paul instructed. We don't tip God our leftovers. We write his check every week before we go to church and we give there we give offerings we give to individuals in need we give to the poor we're prolific in our giving and we enjoy it and we don't fuss about it now we always just seek the lord and we seek what number god is putting on our heart in order to give and it's become a great joy in our life now 
And the same is true for us. In the early years, we walked through financial hardship. We were hit and miss tithers, and it was just such a great pain in our lives. And when we got on our knees together and begged God forgiveness, just said, you know, this is one of those principles. We've been operating in fear, and it's never a good motivator. And we're bringing that tithe in no matter what. And I thought for sure God would be so pleased. And I heard the will whisper across my heart, I want offerings too. And we were in the middle of absolute financial brokenness because of, of medical debt. And I'm like, offerings too. And he said, wherever you go, there'll be somebody who has greater need than you. Always have your eyes open because you're going to think you're absolved from giving in hard times, but you're not. You're a conduit to my kingdom work. And I'm telling you, Chuck, that changed our lives. And and we're the same way now. It's like it has become something that is so knit our hearts. We have a kingdom vision in the way of giving. And I just, I want this for believers when you think of such a small percentage, get to encounter the adventure of faith by attaching your faith to your finances. You know what I'm saying? Where you sow up, you sow the treasures and you fund ministries and help people because it is a, a great use of your finances. So anyway, I'm so passionate about that. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I just I just want to, I want to follow on to that. I love that testimony because God said we're to, we're to be cheerful givers. And, and I think some people hear people talk about tithing, they hear the law, they hear mm, yeah. uh, condemnation. It became cheerful for us. We did it because we love God, and he said to seek him first. He said to honor him with the first fruits of our wealth. And we said, you know, uh, we're honoring a lot of other things besides God. We're going to honor him first and just trust him to work out the rest. So that became our highest. That became number one in our philosophy. And then we said we want to save consistently to be prepared for emergencies. And that came directly from the Scripture, to go to the ant and consider its ways and become wise. Anne loves to save, and she knows how to save, Susie, and she's fantastic at it. And so we've agreed that what we're going to do in giving, and now we've agreed what we're going to do in saving. And I would say that that's the divine order that so many couples are missing, and it sounds like you and your husband got on the same page about is God's going to be faithful to provide. And when he provides, we're called to be faithful to give and to save because that eliminates the fear of giving. It eliminates the fear of the future. It eliminates the fear of the next hot water heater going out or your tires needing to be replaced. It changes everything when you put those two priorities in the very front portion of your budget. So we did those two things. We also agreed our philosophy is to avoid hoarding, that our treasures are not on earth. And so there's a point when we said we've saved enough money, we're now going to focus on uh, giving it away. Spending is an indication of where our heart is. You know, the Lord said that, that where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. It's not the inverse. Our treasure doesn't follow our heart. Our heart follows our treasure. So we invest in the things that are important to the Lord, and we try to avoid having any kind of idols and any kind of investments that have uh, that ties to the world. We also set a philosophy that true riches are more important to us than worldly wealth, and true riches come from the things money can't buy. It's like the, the lady who emailed us earlier, Susie, said, I want to invest in experiences. We've agreed to that. And so those are, the, those are the true riches in life that we want to invest in our children as well. We avoid debt because the Scripture said to, that we don't want to be a servant to the lender. And as we invest, we seek wise counsel and invest with caution. And I view Anne as my best investment counselor. She's phenomenal at it now that I started asking. Mm, wow, that's such great. And all of that is in the book, Friends, and Money Problems, Marriage Solutions. What are your personal guidelines when it comes to investing? Just curious. 
<laughs> well, first of all, we believe in diversification from Ecclesiastes 11 when Solomon said to divide your portions between seven or eight. And so we always diversify. We believe in long-term investing, not daily uh, speculation. So we try to uh, investigate the companies and opportunities that we think are uh, biblically sound, that we agree to together, and then we will make a decision based upon uh, mutually having peace ab about that decision. And we plan to leave the investment there until it has an opportunity to grow. Was that what you were yep. looking for? Fantastic. Very good. Yep. And we received this email from Jonathan. He says, as a Sunday school teacher and young adult leader, I felt the need to give some instruction teaching on what God has to say about finances. What are some main topics that should be covered? Are there a few bullet point scriptures that I should share with the group? Great question, Jonathan. What do you say, Chuck? Well, I don't mean this to just plug our website, but if he goes to crown.org, he can find a plethora of information on that. Uh, we outline the nine key areas of being a faithful steward. That starts with understanding that God owns everything, that we're simply his managers. He's called us to give, save, spend, invest, and to teach the next generation according to his word how to manage money his way. So all those things are available on our website, full of scripture. There's over 3,000 scripture on money and possessions, and we've done the hard work for him. It's all laid out there. And I would be very excited to send him any of our material that he might need for free uh, in order to teach others. That's why, that's why we exist, Susie. Wow. Thanks, Jonathan. That's a great question. We have one break coming up in a few minutes, but before we go there, I want you to tell the story, if you wouldn't mind, about the couple that you called Stephen and Sarah. They came in for counseling. Their marriage is hanging on by a thread. Do you remember that story in the book? Well, I've I had to use composite names. So it's for probably a hard to remember. Is this a couple that in, in the peacemaking chapter? They yes, and they had a wall built up to heaven. You said because oh they, my goodness, yeah. what a dramatic what a dramatic day in my life because they asked me for counsel and what I don't share explicitly in the book is she handed me a note that she was going to end her life that day oh, wow. if they couldn't get their marriage resolved. So oh, I was under tremendous pressure, Susie, and I, I prayed to the Lord, Lord, what do I say to this couple? They wouldn't talk to each other. They couldn't look at each other. You know, there was just a look of death in both of their eyes. They'd been through it. Uh, and so I began to ask questions, and there was nothing that I could find that was the root cause. I couldn't find the root cause. And so after being just beating my head against the wall, I said to them both, uh, has either of you ever apologized to the other? Just simply said, I'm sorry. And they both looked at me. The woman said first, no, I don't ever apologize to him. And he looked at me and he said, no, I never apologize to her. And Susie, I could not believe it. <laughs> They'd been married, I think it was around 10 years and had never apologized. And so I said, until one of you apologizes, this wall that Satan has built between you cannot be scaled. Somebody's got to apologize. And so I just went silent. <laughs> As I sat there, I thought I could hear my watch ticking. It was wow. just scarily silent. And I was praying, Lord, one of them needs to apologize. We were at a little cafe where people could see us sitting there. That's where they wanted to meet in public in case, you know, it calmed down some of their fighting so it wouldn't escalate. All of a sudden, the guy falls to his knees, crawls over on this concrete cafe floor to his wife, lays his head in her lap, and he screamed, Will you forgive me? I am so sorry. I, I love you. I love you. I love you. And he was weeping, and then she started weeping, and I think I was weeping. She said, I am sorry, too. I forgive you. Will you forgive me? And what happened, Susie, is it was 
people said in the church was it was a miracle. Nobody thought that that could happen. But that's when they got Satan out from between the two of them, humbled themselves to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And that started the rebuilding of their marriage. This is what I love about this book today by Chuck Bentley and his dear wife, Anne, is because there's so much practical advice about building peace in the marriage, about it's more than finances, money problems, marriage solutions, seven keys to aligning your finances and uniting your hearts. We've got three copies. I wish we had a hundred. It's a fantastic book. When we come back, we'll answer this question. I'll give you a heads up here, Chuck. From this dear listener says, we just bought a home. We know God picked it for us, but we're feeling the new mortgage pinch. We felt settled financially, but this shift has knocked some confidence out of our sales. How do we encourage one another to remain disciplined, not backslide into old habits? We'll answer that question and more when we return. Don't go away. Back in a minute. One foot, one step in front of the other. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Susie Larson. This is Live the Promise, talking to financial expert Chuck Bentley, who co-wrote a really great book with his wife, Anne. It's titled Money Problems, Marriage Solutions. Before the break, I set up this question from this listener, Chuck, and uh, she writes, We just bought a home. We know God picked it for us, and we're feeling the new mortgage pinch. We felt settled financially, but this shift has knocked some confidence out of our sales. How do we encourage one another to remain disciplined and not backslide into old, bad financial habits? What say you, Chuck? Well, first of all, I want to talk to the person in depth to be sure they didn't do what I did early in our marriage, and that is become house poor. Mm-hmm. We were so eager to get our house purchased, our first home, and move into it that we really couldn't afford it. And I, I sort of finagled my way into that uh, first decision, and we were we were under financial stress uh, continually. It's the biggest part of our budget. It's the biggest part of the expense in the American budget. Typically about 26% of our total income goes towards housing and all related expenses. And the first few years are the most expensive because you're fixing it up and doing curtains and paint and all that. So if be sure you're not house poor. And if you are, you need to make a decision to get out of that situation and until you can afford where you're living. Otherwise, the stress will just go on month after month. Uh, in regard to the discipline, we live in an era where you can automate discipline. You can set up the parameters that you need, and you can automate everything. You can automate your automatic withdrawals for your saving. You can automate your giving. You can automate your mortgage payments. You can literally automate it all. And so I would recommend if you're able to do that, to get automated so that that it's just happening without you having to question each month if that needs to happen. That way it starts to to run on itself and you start to make real progress. Uh, And then just pray about it. Pray with each other and discuss these things. Ann and I like to have a time when we go away from the children. We typically like to get a cup of coffee or go to a library and sit and just talk about our finances and the decisions we've made and review where we are and encourage each other. I like to use the word encouragement because this is not a time to uh, judge each other. It's not a time for uh, guilt or condemnation. It's a time to help each other and to lift each other up. 
Very, very good. One of your keys, so we talked about committing to becoming a peacemaker and live by God's philosophy of money. You also say that we need to grasp the biblical definition of prosperity. Say a word, if you would, about that, Chuck. Well, I was a typical business school graduate. I felt like the scorecard was how much money I could make and how quick I could make it. And I was just very externally minded when it came to wealth. I thought it was measured by a bank account and was internally minded. For her, it was measured by uh, the health of our family and how well we were doing uh, as husband and wife and with our children. Obviously, she had it right. I didn't. But we couldn't agree on what prosperity really meant. And so we were aiming at two different targets. And I think this is one of those subtle tricks of Satan where we kind of have a feeling or an intuition of what prosperity might look like. And sometimes it's just a little bit more money. And I didn't know that God defines prosperity in the scripture in Jeremiah 29. And he actually spells it out to the, to the, uh, to the Israelites who are being taken captive. And he said, if you're going to prosper, this is verse 11, if you're going to prosper, you're going to have to follow my plan. I know the plan I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope in the future. But he told them the plan in verses 4 through 10. He said, I want you to settle down and uh, have a place to live. I want you to plant a garden and eat from your own garden, marry and have children, uh, help them to find spouses, then seek the peace and prosperity of the city where I've called you. And so there's two things that are inherent in prosperity. Number one is marriage is a step towards prosperity. That's a surprise to most people. We have young people today that think that if they stay unmarried and just live together, that will be better financially. And it's the exact opposite. You actually prosper more in marriage, and all the surveys, all the research, all the facts have proven that to be true. Secondly, you prosper when you have a family. Children are a form of prosperity. And again, the lie of the culture is, you know, if you have too many children, you're going to go broke. That is just not true. And all the research I put it in the back of the book indicates that marriage is the best thing for you financially, and so is having a family. Mm, such good stuff. You offer some great advice for how to loosen our grip on materialism. And uh, I just want to give a few of these. You touched on making giving your top priority. Even anonymous giving is great. You said give, giving consistently will, consistently will break the grip of materialism in your heart. You also say give away something that you deeply treasure. Talk about the impact of that. Well, it's a phenomenal experience. My wife is not sentimental. I'm sort of the hoarder. I like that. You know, I've always got a future use for everything, and so I've never met a tool that I could give away or, you know, something I might need to fix something. So I hoard, and Ann is very eager to be more minimalist than I am. And so it's a challenge, especially for me. And we've gone through the process of saying, if we were going to move to a foreign country, what would you take with you? What would you pay to put on this on the ship to ship over to a foreign country? If it's not that important to you and our kids don't want it, let's get rid of it. And so we've been doing that, Susie. It's always painful for me. Uh, but we realize that if we're not being good stewards of it and using it or we don't need it, let's pass it on to somebody else who needs it more than us. And so we've gone through things that have been you know, valuable to us, prized to us, maybe something that we thought we might keep for a hundred years. And we've either sold it or we've given it away in order to be sure that the things of this world are not the things that are controlling our uh, decision 
and holding us back from being available for God to fully use us how he wants to use us. And how free did you feel once you kind of released those things from your grip? Oh, I, it's a wonderful feeling yeah. too, to be to be free of it. I, now, there's two things about money. Number one, God says we're to master money and not to ever let it master us. Uh, so when we master it, we know how to use it well. But in, but we also have to guard that it doesn't master us where all of our decisions are made because of finances. And in other words, if you were offered a promotion, would you consider only the factor of how much money you were going to make? No, a mature person would say, well, what would that do to my family? What would that do to my kids? Would we have to move? Would I have to work overtime? Would it take away from my ability to create uh, memorable experiences with my kids or grandkids? So you make a more holistic decision about that. And when you when you give away things and you realize that you're no longer having to pay taxes on them, insure them, do maintenance or have insurance, you know, all those things, you feel liberty, and you feel the liberty to do the things that are priceless in life, the things that money can't buy. So good. This one was interesting to me, too. Practice meekness in your lifestyle choices. Put far less on display than is held in reserve. Say a word, if you would. Well, God says the meek shall inherit the earth, and that verse is actually, in my view, a financial verse. Meekness means that uh, you're humble and that you uh, are not controlled by your possessions. You don't have to put them on display. A meek person will have far more in storage than they have out front uh, in the in the shopping window. And so if you're not meek, you want to put all of your resources on display by what you drive, where you live, what you wear, the kind of matching person, handbag, you know, the handbag and shoes matching thing. All of that starts to drive your uh, financial decisions. But meekness says, no, those things aren't important. Outward appearances are not what matter to God. My heart matters to God. So I'm going to be able to store resources. I'm going to be able to give resources so that I don't have to tell the world what I have. And I think that's the first sign of good stewardship is a humility about what God has entrusted to you. And you understand why the meek inherit the earth, because they can manage it. Mm, that's good. <laughs> They're not having to spend everything they have. They're the good managers. Mm, boy, that's fantastic. We're going to be praying here in just a moment, but I wanted to combine two others that you put together. Limit your exposure to advertising, commercials, and shopping, and read God's Word, biographies of heroes of the faith, and go on short-term missions together. Just those two things will give you a massive paradigm shift, won't they? Well, those are a part of our life. I just hear my wife's input in the book echoing in my ears. Uh, she's a phenomenal shopper. I, I, the way we're able to be better givers and better savers is that we're just really smart shoppers. We're super careful about that. My wife will tell me some days, you know, my whole outfit, from shoes all the way through the dress, everything I have on, less than $10. That's amazing. Of course, <laughs> I feel guilty because I, I don't shop that well. She's great at it. Hmm. Uh, but that allows us to do the things that are more meaningful to us. All those things she just listed uh, our short-term mission trips, uh, the things that help us keep our perspective. You know, we live in the richest country in the history of mankind. Even the poor in our country are richer than people were back in the old days when they, you know, they didn't have a refrigerator, they didn't have a microwave oven, they didn't have a color TV or transportation. You know, it's just amazing how much comfort we have, but billions of people don't have access to any of that. And so we want to orient our life outward and help others who 
uh, don't have what God's entrusted to us. Well, Chuck, I pray you'll come back because there's so much packed into this uh, thin book and it's just, it's bursting with wisdom. So I pray you'll come back. But will you pray for that person listening today who's listening to you going, I've got some conversations to have, some adjustments to make. Uh, Would you pray grace upon that person? Lord Jesus, I did the program today to talk about the book because you redeemed us, you rescued us. And I want to pray for those who need rescued right now. They need rescued from a fight they're having. They need rescued from a hard heart. They need rescued from frustration or disrespect. They need rescued from fear of the future. Lord, possibly they've been divided and they want to get closer. They want to rebuild and restore their relationship. I pray, Lord, there will be acceptance. There will be forgiveness. There will be peacemaking. There will be apologies today before the sun goes down. Mm -hmm there'll be a reconciliation, and that you'll save that marriage, you'll save that broken heart, you'll save that family that maybe has seen their riches in the world and not within their own family unit. Lord, we, we uh, pray that we've pointed people to you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Don't go away. Hour 2 with Liz Curtis Higgs is coming up next.